The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. So recently I was talking to my friend Yegan at her body. She's a reporter here at The Post on the business desk. And since the beginning of the pandemic, she has been fascinated by how Iran has handled COVID. Iran was one of the first countries outside of China and really the first in the Middle East to have a major outbreak of the pandemic. People were getting sick, dying. Hospitals were overwhelmed um, with patients. And uh, we even saw the the digging of these sort of mass trenches for victims of the coronavirus um, in one city. So it really was quite a tragic situation there. I also remember this, watching the news and seeing those mass trenches in Iran. It felt like what I was watching was this possible canary in the coal mine of how bad COVID could get here in the U.S. Iran has the worst COVID outbreak in the Middle East. It's now struggling with a lethal new wave of infections. And though Iran's government was criticized um, in the early days of the pandemic for being slow to recognize it for the emergency that it really was, eventually they did move to a strategy of lockdowns and masking. And then as time went on, um, just like in other parts of the world, the attention of the government really shifted to vaccination and mass vaccination as a way of uh, controlling the pandemic. Developing a COVID vaccine is, as we know, already pretty complicated. But in Iran, there was another layer of complication because of the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And if you like search this vaccine in, in Iranian Twitter, like there's a million people saying, oh, you know, this is going straight to Khamenei's pocket. And Yegene wanted to know, was this just chatter or was there really favoritism in how this first vaccine got approved? I mean, I I wanted to know sort of how it was approved. I wanted to know who um, benefited from those decisions. And, you know, I wanted to know the process behind it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 22nd. Today, how Iran's government cut corners to approve an unproven vaccine and how people close to the Iranian regime benefited at one of the deadliest times of the pandemic. The main tactic that the government pursued at first was to try to import vaccines. And so it actually joined um, this effort called COVAX, which was set up by the WHO, the Gavi Alliance, a couple other international organizations, which was really aimed at trying to ensure um, equitable access to vaccines for low and middle income countries. For some countries, COVAX, this mechanism would donate the vaccines for free. And for other countries like Iran, um, which are a little wealthier, it would allow them to purchase the vaccines using their own funds. And then what happened? How did that become more complicated, this one plan for how they were going to get vaccines? You know, in addition to the COVAX mechanism, other um, parties in the private sector, Iranian businesses, as well as um, the nonprofit sector, like the Iranian Red Crescent, Um, which is their equivalent of the Red Cross, they made efforts to also import vaccines through kind of their own relationships and through other connections in Russia, China, um, other parts of the world. But in January 2021, there was a big damper put on some of these plans, which was the announcement by Iran's supreme leader, um, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, 
that he was actually barring the import of American and British-made vaccines um, into Iran. Um, And that, of course, included the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, which had been um, shown by that time to be highly effective. Why were American and British vaccines banned? Ayatollah Ali Khamenei labeled the Western powers as untrustworthy and raised the possibility they were seeking to spread the infection to other countries. His argument at the time was that, um, you know, Western countries um, use Iranians, um, you know, as basically test subjects for their uh, medical products. And he kind of was sowing some doubt about the technology behind those vaccines. Imports of U.S. and British vaccines into the country are forbidden. If the Americans were able to produce a vaccine, they would not have such a coronavirus fiasco in their own country. I think it's important context to know that, you know, one very consistent feature of Khamenei's leadership um, since he took over the Iranian government you know, more than 30 years ago is extreme skepticism and opposition to the West and to the United States in particular. And so I think that the decision to bar those vaccines, particularly the American and British vaccines, should be sort of seen in that context. So then where did that leave Iran? I mean, if they had signed up for COVAX, but as we know, COVAX is a complicated program that hasn't been perfect in providing vaccines to um, poor middle income countries. And then you have the Ayatollah who is banning the import of Pfizer, Moderna. Then like, what do they do? How are they going to vaccinate people quickly? So even as, you know, the private sector and nonprofit sector are trying to import doses that are not Pfizer or Moderna, they are encountering some obstacles at the Ministry of Health. These officials, these executives have given public accounts saying that their applications for permits to import these vaccines saw delays of weeks, months even, as people were dying of COVID and waiting for vaccinations. So the trickle of vaccines into the country was really slowing down. But at the same time that all of this was happening and these issues around imports were coming up, there is also the ramping up of a domestic effort to manufacture vaccines inside Iran. And what was the rationale behind that? Like, why was it so important for Iran to produce its own vaccine? Iran, and especially the the Islamic Republic of Iran, the uh, system of government that has ruled there since 1979, has long had a very large emphasis on self-reliance and on the idea that, you know, Iran cannot really depend on other countries for its well-being. So this was part of the ideology that swept the Islamic Republic into power in 1979. It has gotten a bit of a new lease on life, especially recently in the last decade or so with the imposition of really harsh economic sanctions on Iran over its nuclear program. There's very much a sense among the ruling elites that Iran has to be self-sufficient. And that is sort of the ideology and the justification that they use to sell and justify certain policies, including the manufacture of vaccines domestically inside the country. And I think one interesting thing to note that might be surprising for people who aren't really familiar with Iran is that this vaccine was really portrayed as sort of a a technological advancement that would put Iran within an elite club of countries producing their own COVID vaccines. And it was even presented by officials, including the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, as an advancement on on a par with uh, military advancements in the country. So what did that look like? Like, who was responsible for developing and manufacturing these vaccines? 
So one effort, probably the most prominent effort, was led by a company called Baricat. And Baricat is a pharmaceutical company that is itself part of a larger conglomerate. This conglomerate has a pretty long history in Iran, having come into being basically since 1989. And it got its start by confiscating properties uh, from ordinary Iranians, religious minorities, other people, and over time has invested into different parts of Iran's economy, including the pharmaceutical sector, which is a, a pretty lucrative sector in Iran. The most recent information we have is that Batakat, which is the pharmaceutical arm of this conglomerate, holds a 14% market share um, in Iran's pharmaceutical market. And this is the company company that was sort of leading the most high-profile effort to produce a domestic COVID vaccine. I think one other thing that's very notable about this conglomerate is that it is seen as being very close to the supreme leader. Hmm. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who is also Iran's head of state, he ultimately is the most powerful person in Iran. He controls um, the armed forces, the judiciary, many other organs of, of power in Iran. He also chooses the chief executive of this conglomerate. He plays kind of this dual role. It's sort of known within Iran and within Iran's government that this entity is very close to the supreme leader. And so that is the entity that was making um, and and manufacturing and researching this vaccine and also asking for regulatory approval of it from the Ministry of Health, from the Food and Drug Administration. And I can imagine that that's something that might have raised some eyebrows when that was announced. Can you talk through, like, what are the potential problems there, the reasons why questions could be asked of a company that is so close to Iran's supreme leader being the one who is uh, supposed to be developing and manufacturing these vaccines? You know, there's a just a very fundamental conflict of interest issue here, which is that when the application for approval of this vaccine comes before, you know, mid-level bureaucrats in Iran, those bureaucrats, they don't have to, you know, ask a ton of questions to know that this vaccine candidate is being manufactured um, and stands to benefit a company ultimately very close to Iran's supreme leader. And that, I think, given the power that Khamenei holds within Iran over its intelligence agencies, its judiciary, its law enforcement, um, I think any bureaucrat operating in a system like Iran's would, would be very aware of that. And I think that raises some really fundamental questions about whether this vaccine was advantaged, for instance, over other candidates. Well, let's talk about that process. What did it look like as this company was developing a vaccine and getting ready to actually give it to people? So there was a lot of news coverage about every single step of this vaccine. I was able to kind of piece together a timeline of, you know, when things uh, started and sort of how much data they had when regulators uh, made their decision on this vaccine. You know, there was another candidate um, for a COVID vaccine being developed at around the same time. It was developed in part um, with Iran's Pasteur Institute, which is sort of a partner of the French Pasteur Institute. And that was being done in partnership with um, a prestigious biomedical organization in Cuba, actually. The vaccine being made by the Cuban-Iranian Partnership and Batacat's vaccine, both of those went up for emergency use authorization uh, from Iranian regulators in sort of late spring 2021. Even though the Cuban-Iranian joint effort 
um, had consistently been ahead of Batacat in its uh, research process and submitted more complete data uh, compared to Batacat's um, two regulators. It was Batacat's vaccine that got uh, the authorization first. And what was the rationale that they gave of why Batacat was able to go first? When the health minister announced the decision on June 14th, 2021, he said that there were a few, quote, deficiencies in the Cuban-Iranian application and that it would be taken up again soon. And it ended up receiving its approval a couple weeks after Batacat did. So in, in some ways, what you're describing actually sounds kind of familiar to me, that you have multiple pharmaceutical companies that are trying to make a vaccine for a population as quickly as possible. Um, and part of that is just because of how horrible the pandemic was and how much of a uh, of a race there was to potentially save lives. And I think that even here in the U.S., and I know that this is true in, in many countries, that there was this um, sense of trying to expedite the normal scientific process to be able to get these vaccines into arms as quickly as possible. So so what is the difference here? Like, what, why is what Iran was doing so um, allegedly out of line when compared to what was happening in countries around the world? Yeah, you know, you're totally right that many countries were fast forwarding or expediting their um, vaccine research um, and approval process in order to address the really exigent circumstances of the pandemic. I think a crucial difference, though, is that Vaccines approved in the United States, for instance, had at least submitted phase three data to regulators when they received their emergency approvals. And this was not the case with the Batacat vaccine. And although other countries, including Russia and China, have also approved vaccines without phase three data, this is really frowned upon by most of the scientific community who really see it as a very risky decision. Did anyone in Iran call this out? Yeah. So in addition to experts um, that were raising these issues at the time, there was actually a warning from inside the government itself. Um, and specifically, it was the deputy health minister, a person named Farid Najafi, who wrote a letter to his boss, the health minister at the time, Saeed Namaki, saying there are issues with the amount of testing that this vaccine has undergone and really warning of some of the consequences that could occur if the government were to approve a vaccine that has not undergone some of the most rigorous testing that vaccines normally go through. And, you know, he basically very clearly stated that this could lead in the long term to skepticism of vaccines and popular mistrust in either the COVID vaccines or other vaccines, and that this would make managing the epidemic uh, much, much harder in Iran in the future. But I also imagine, I mean, they must have been under immense pressure to be able to provide a vaccine that they hoped would save a lot of lives. And so I wonder what they have to say about this accusation that they essentially skipped a step or skipped multiple steps in a way that some people think could have endangered the people who are receiving these vaccines. I've asked uh, Vatican officials, I've asked current and former Ministry of Health officials, both in interview requests and also, you know, with detailed questions, I've asked them if they can provide their justification for um, why Batacat deserved an emergency use authorization um, without having provided phase three data. I haven't gotten any response. I will say that generally Batacat executives and um, officials from the government say that they were doing what they had to do to protect Iran, um, and especially during a time of sanctions and economic pressure, and that this was an effort to uh, protect Iranians and do it using Iranian resources. 
They also say that Batacat's process was rigorous and that the process that that the um, Ministry of Health sets up for review of vaccines is, is rigorous and that ultimately, you know, the health of the Iranian people is the company's highest priority. So it sounds like there are a lot of criticisms around the process of this vaccine rollout. But to be clear, I mean, there is no evidence that this vaccine was in fact harmful or that it didn't in fact hurt people, at least that we know so far, correct? Right. So we don't have any proof that this vaccine was harmful or had any you know, major serious side effects. Um, the evidence that we do have from the early testing of the vaccine shows that it does produce antibodies. It is um, at least somewhat effective in guarding against the worst consequences of the coronavirus. Um, and that, that evidence also shows that there weren't major um, side effects. Um, the caveat to that is that we still don't have that sort of mass testing of this vaccine, the data from that study, which would show the results of this vaccine in, you know, tens of thousands of people. So then after this rushed process to approve the vaccine, how did the rollout go? Executives at Batacat had made certain promises about how many doses they would be able to produce, and they they were very specific about those promises. For instance, they had said that by September 2021, the company would have been able to produce 50 million doses. And we really saw that that didn't happen. Um, a company statement from January 2022 shows that by that point, the company had made around 25 million doses, so about half of what they had initially promised and several months late. And we really see that um, kind of uh, have a reverberation in Iran's vaccination process um, throughout the summer of uh, 2021, which is also when the Delta variant was um, hitting the country. There were shortages of vaccines. Iranians who could afford to do so were traveling to Armenia um, for free vaccines there, but that was not something available to everyone. And really, Iran entered its worst phase of the of the coronavirus at that point with um, tens of thousands of infections per day, hundreds of deaths per day, um, and you know something that just really had a huge impact on the country. After the break, Yegana and I talk about who benefited from this rushed process. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. So, Yegana, is there any evidence that the Supreme Leader, like, personally made money off of this vaccine, even if it doesn't seem to have been used very widely by Iranians? So we don't have any evidence that the Supreme Leader um, himself was was personally enriched by um, Batacat's actions or its profits from the vaccine. Um, but we do have evidence of other conflicts of interest. So there are um, two board members 
that you know currently sit on Barakat's board who have also held pretty crucial positions um, in Iran's uh, sort of uh, public health apparatus. They were both named to the sort of national task force on you know responding to COVID in March 2020, and they held those positions even while they sat on the board. And just a couple days after the vaccine received its approval, Barakat decided to reward its board members for their performance sort of in the prior financial year. And so that is very clear evidence that, you know, board members, at least in some way, stand to benefit when the company does well. Um, And those board members were also serving within the government, at least at a crucial time in the pandemic. So looking at all of your reporting and the ways in which you've been able to dive deeper into how exactly this vaccine was developed and what happened after it was distributed to the Iranian population, What are your big takeaways? Like, why do you think understanding the moments where things went wrong, why that's important? I think it's important to understand how the Iranian government works and how decisions are made um, inside the country. And I think it's important to hold the country's leaders and um, its business executives accountable for their decisions, especially when those decisions affect millions of people. I think What this story tries to do is really delve deep into the justifications for a pretty controversial decision and then also the, you know, pretty extensive fallout from that decision, both uh, financially for this company in question, which really benefited, and then also for, um, you know, Iranians and their long-term trust in their public health apparatuses. And do you think that has changed because of this vaccine rollout, that Iranians trust their government less because of what happened? You know, it's hard to say because I will say that as someone who used to cover Iran and follows the news there pretty closely, I'd say there was not a very high level of social cohesion and trust in the government um, initially. There's been wave after wave of of protest um, in Iran, you know, for the last Um, more than 10, um, 12 years. You know, some of those are getting kind of more extreme at times, advancing from complaints about electoral processes to, you know, demands for the entire government to fall. And so it's hard to know if, like, if there's any one decision or any one choice by the government that leads to a decline in public trust. I would say that this decision and this process is a very clear example of the kind of interaction that the government and kind of the business entities linked to the government have with the public that leads to distrust and lower levels of trust overall. Yagana, thank you so much for sharing this all. Thank you so much for having me. Yagana Torbati is a reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik and Eliza Dennis. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.